Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than Dolly the Sheep. Technology, eh? My name's Ash Rose, your host on this, the original 1990s football podcast, Alive and Kicking. Ignore those latecomers, ignore those imitators. Alive and Kicking was first, and it's now been going 125 episodes. I didn't even realise that until I, uh, I counted them up the other day. So that's a lot of hours of 90s football. So if you haven't listened to all of those, maybe this is your first time listening, or maybe you've only been with us uh, since this year or even the past 18 months, go back, listen to the episodes in the archive. They don't go out of date. They're 90s football. It's all there for you. Some great guests, some great people from that era talking as well. Go back and listen to them while we've got time on our hands here in lockdown. Speaking of lockdown, did you do your lockdown 11? That's where we were last time out on the last episode. Uh, myself, Joel Young and Matthew Christ, we picked our lockdown 11s based on a game I think Jamie Carragher invented. Um, it didn't go quite according to plan. I think the boys got a bit confused in terms of the rules, but it was fun nonetheless. And thank you to everyone who tweeted their 11s to us at AK90s. If you don't follow us already on Twitter, it was fun seeing who you came out with and some of the fun names that were had to be guided into the 11 because of the rules the rules boys you didn't read the rules i love them really um on today's show um we are going tournament yeah it's we always try and do a tournament themed episode around this time um Obviously, we should be at the moment enjoying Euro 2020. We're not because of this horrible pandemic that we're still in. Hope everyone is safe and well from that as well, by the way. So we're doing a tournament pod today. Um, it's based around an article, actually, that um, was, I think we were tagged in or I saw on Twitter um, from today's guest as well. He's joined us on the show where we look back and kind of change the narrative of 1994 and pick the England squad for the 1994 World Cup. So we, in a make-believe world, have now qualified for USA 94, which, you know, for me, is one of my favourite World Cups. If I mention that shirt, I'm sure you'll hear about it on today's show. Um, anyway, yeah, so England have qualified. Graham Taylor is obviously still the manager. He didn't get the sack. The turnip turned it around. Uh, who would he have picked in his England 23 for USA 94? So... We kind of talked through the article that um, Stu, who's our guest today, uh, put on his blog. We talked through that and offer a few different alternatives. Just have a general chat about uh, who would have been included in, uh, in, in very much in that squad if it had happened. All those, was it 26 years ago that it would have been um, this, this year? Yeah, actually, I think it kicked off yesterday. In fact, 26 years ago, USA 94. So, yeah, that's to look forward to. And an Excellent guest, absolutely brilliant guest we've got on today's show. Um, no introduction needed, really. An absolute bona fide legend of 1990s football, former Liverpool and England midfielder John Barnes. Yes, John Barnes, uh, John Barnes joining us on the show. Obviously very much in the news for a variety of reasons at the moment. But he's speaking to us about the 90s and his uh, ups and downs in, in that decade. Um, and it's all due to do with Now TV. So thank you very much to, to Now TV, who he spoke to us on behalf of, who are to celebrate the return of the Premier League streaming 
Now TV is hosting two virtual legend watch-alongs for the must-watch fixtures this weekend. So that's Tottenham and Man United on the 19th of June tomorrow and Everton versus Liverpool on the 21st of June. And they're running this brilliant competition. Two lucky fans, along with five of their mates, will win the opportunity to watch their team play, joined by one of the club legends. So either John Barnes, our guest today, or Peter Schmeichel um, on a via a private video call. So basically, you'll be watching it on a Zoom call with your mates and a legend. So it's a watch-along. You can win that chance um, with, there's a tight turnaround on this which we couldn't help because of the timings of recordings um, competition winners if you want to enter uh, you just need to email legendswatchalong at feverpr.com that's legendswatchalong at feverpr.com with the details of which team you support and why you want to watch a game with one of your footballing heroes winners will also get a one month past and now tv um to enjoy even more of the games so yeah go for it only problem you have you only have a few hours the deadline is midnight thursday the 18th of june so we've only this should be dropping this afternoon so i don't know you've got maybe six or seven hours to get your entry in and you could be watching uh your favourite team, either that is if you're a Tottenham or a Man United fan or an Everton or a Liverpool fan with either John Barnes or Peter Schmeichel in your private video call. Um, just so you know, competition winners will join the club legend to online before kickoff, get all their predictions in and then enjoy the full 90 minutes live as they watch every tackle, every foul and hopefully, not like last night in the goalless draw with Aston Villa and Sheffield United, although it shouldn't have been, of course, uh, there'll be some goals. So yeah, thank you very much to Now TV. Um, if for those who aren't lucky enough to win, Now TV will also be offering an unprecedented 64 live Premier League games between now and the end of the season. A Sky Sports month pass is available for fans for just £25 a month which is a saving over 25% of the usual price. The deal is live from the 15th of June, so now to the 2nd of July 2020. Um, fans can also choose a Sky Sports Day Pass for 9.99. More information, go to nowtv.com. And thank you once again for letting us speak to John Barnes. So enjoy his chat. My only caveat to that chat with John Barnes, obviously the theme of the show, as I mentioned, is the 1994 World Cup, which John probably would have been a part of, as we'll discuss. I was literally about to get into that question when our time got cut short. So we don't actually get to talk to John Barnes about 1994, but there's plenty of great chat about Liverpool, uh, about uh, Italian 90. He tells a great Gaza story. And yes, of course, I talked to him about World in Motion. How could I not? You've got you... to hold and gear, but do it at the right time. You can be slow or fast, but you must get to the land. They'll always hit you and hurt you. Defender, and I won't carry on, but yeah, greatest rap of all time? I think so. Anyway, enjoy the show. Enjoy our interview with John Barnes and tell us how we did. What do you think England squad of 1994 would have been? Have a listen, see who we pick, and then tell us on Twitter if we got it right or wrong. Love to hear from you. Also, during lockdown, I must say, I've loved seeing everyone going in their lofts and digging out all their old 90s, uh, 90s stuff. Loads of Corinthian figures. Corinthians have gone mad during lockdown. I've managed to grab a few that I wanted for my collection, but the prices and the dealers and uh, collectors, I've just, every day I've seen a new... A dealer or collector on Twitter trying to sell and swap and stuff. It's gone a bit mental for Corinthian figures. So we may do another pod on that at some point. We've done one already. So go back again in the archive. Have a listen to that. But yeah, enjoyed seeing all the photos, all the collections of, I think, I think I spoke about last time as well. We, um, we're going to do a pod on that as well at some point. Um, anyway, let's get on with today's show. I'm Ash Rose. This is Alive and Kicking. Enjoy the episode. And as always, keep it 90s. 
sit back and enjoy a nostalgic ride through the decade that truly changed the face of football. If the 90s are now retro, then it's time for a celebration. Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. Welcome back to Alive and Kicking, where it's tournament time. Yes, during the summer, we always tend to try and do a kind of tournament-themed type show. Um, we've done various variations of that over the summers. We've been going now for five years. Unbelievable. And um, we're going to do that again today. And it's kind of skewed towards USA 94, which actually kicked off 26 years ago yesterday. Yep, that's the moment you all feel very old once again. Diana Ross doing that famous penalty um, before the tournament kicked off. Um, Georgie Hadji actually scored one of the goals of the tournament on this day, 18th of June. I saw on Twitter earlier, I think our good friend Sid Lambert tweeted that out, obviously, he's always on the money. Um, so what we thought we'd do, as I said in that intro, we're going to sort of change the narrative of USA 94 and pretend, just for a glorious half an hour or hour, hour long we chat for, that England did qualify for the 1994 World Cup. And what squad would they pick? And this has all been based on a brilliant article and blog um, from our first guest um, uh, on today's show, a, a newbie to our recording, Alive and Kicking. Um, the blog is brilliant. It's um, Stu's footy uh, blog that's on Twitter. Do follow it if you can. Um, one of those underfollowed accounts. I think there are accounts that are overfollowed, and this one is definitely underfollowed because Stu's footy for, for flashbacks, if I can get my words out, Stu's football flashbacks there you go um does do some great stuff on there and he did pick the the 94 world cup squad so we're going to go for it now Stuart, welcome to alive and kicking thank you for joining us no thank you for having me ash it's great to be here good good stuff uh, we'll chat about it in a minute and alongside us as well one of our regulars mr matthew chris writer and blogger extraordinaire how you doing matthew very well thanks very well good afternoon both good to speak to you once again Yes, it's, all good. it's been a few weeks um, since our lockdown eleven episode, which you and Joel completely ballsed up by getting the theme wrong. But well, I, hang on I, a minute, hang on a minute. <laughs> I listened to that back. I think I was the only one that actually got that right. But then again, I did spend about three weeks and about <laughs> and half, half a rainforest of note paper, you know, correcting it and recorrecting it. So I had no excuse. But yeah, I, I do uh, distance myself from uh, from that criticism because I, I do think it was uh, it's basically all Joel's fault. Seeing as he's yeah. not here. That's just, that's it. That's easy. Yeah, we'll blame Joe. Um, I don't know what Twitter account he's on at the moment because he keeps moving. So we'll put, he's on Twitter somewhere. Blame him. Um, so we're going to talk 1994 World Cup. Before we do, Stuart, um, something we haven't done for a long time, actually. Um, and when we get new people on, we, we ask them their 90s football CV, which is something we used to do really early on in the show. Um, back when it was episodes one to whatever, because we're now on, I think this is a, episode 127. Didn't realise wow. that until I know until the other day. So it's a lot of 90s football we've chatted. Um, you're an Aston Villa fan, which we haven't had many. I think Andrew who was on a lot of our early shows. Um, talked a bit about Villa so what we normally ask is your favourite Aston Villa player of the 1990s do tell us uh, my favourite Aston Villa player of the 1990s is Dean Saunders oh classic 90s uh, yeah he uh, he he moved for like a record fee for Villa at the time I think it was 2.3 million uh, and it was the beginning of the, of the very first Premier League season um, and Villa hadn't won uh, sorry they won two out of the first eight games uh, Saunders signed and everything just changed, and Villa just started climbing up the table. He had a, a great relationship with Dalian Atkinson up front. Um, I think he scored a brace against Liverpool, who he signed from mm -hmm. um, on his debut, which which uh, is a way to uh, announce yourself. 
Um, and yeah, it just it would just it, everything seemed to click as soon as Saunders went to Villa Park, really. Um, and uh, as soon as uh, Villa finished second that year, obviously. But then the next year, the uh, when they won the uh, League Cup in 1994, uh, he scored some vital goals in that run to the final and two in the final itself, which I was actually there as a fan with my dad. Um, so so yeah, Saunders is always it's always a spot in my heart for Dean Saunders. Yeah, and I remember Dean sort of scoring a, a worldy of a goal. Is it again? I want to say against Oldham at Villa Park. Oh, I think you're on about Ipswich. Ipswich, that's it. Yeah, yes. from the byline. Yeah, right. That's an absolute worldy. Yeah, I always rated him. Scored a couple of goals against QPR as well early on in probably that following season. We were wearing the black kit. Um, I remember that as well. In, a, a thoroughly disappointing display from QPR, but um, Dean Saunders was on fire that day. Matthew, are you, you've mentioned Dean Saunders on here before. Am I, or is that Joel? Um, I, think, I don't, off the top of my head, I don't remember no, mentioning him, but I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of him. I mean, you've got to remember when, when he went to Liverpool, wasn't he not, was he not the most expensive player in the country at the time? And he, didn't he go for 2.7 million or two Yes, point? I think he was, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, he was, uh, he was hot property and, uh, I don't know, I hate saying, we always seem to say every time we have a chat, but, you know, was he underrated? But I mean, he, he was up there in that sort of underrated of the 90s, I think. Yeah. Maybe I, just I, maybe because he went to Liverpool at the wrong time, maybe, and he sort of maybe. I think a lot of good good players in the nineties that that went to Liverpool, and this isn't a criticism of them or the club, but they seem to it seemed to sort of, you know, you got uh, Mark Wright, Dean Saunders, uh, Mark Walters. You know, they signed a lot of players, and then, and then the club went through a bit of a bad spell, and it seemed to taint their career somewhat. And I think Saunders might be one of those, but then obviously he bounced back with this move to Villa, which for him and, and Villa was was great, obviously. Yeah, his son is actually. Uh, I, I found this out when I was just looking him up the other day. He's he, he was nominated for the Ballon d'Or in 1991. While, really? Uh, while, yeah, he received a couple of votes. Um, wow. I think it must be maybe the Wales connection. I'm not sure, but yeah, I've, I've gobsmacked when I saw that. So it's another thing to add to his CV. He was good. I don't think he was Ballon d'Or good. But no, no, I'm not saying he was. <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe his mother, Mrs. Saunders, maybe she was on the voting panel that year. But yeah, interesting. That is very interesting. But yeah, it was a big move at the time, and obviously he was aware of that great Villa kit of that time with the laces, which is one of my favourite football yeah, kits of all time. Oh, amazing! Bring back the laces, Umbro. Come on, bring them back. <laughs> Um, our second question to you, Stu, on our football CV is always, um, outside of Villa Park then, your favourite overall player of the 1990s? Uh, my favourite overall player of the 1990s, I think you're going to like this, actually, because I know that you say he's underrated, is David Platt. Ah, oh, someone we're going to talk a lot about today, actually. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, he's, he's obviously quite vo- uh, pivotal in this squad, but just the, how Platt did, what he did at club level... Um, before he even got into international, is just it's, it's more than most English players of the of the decade itself. And yeah, I think he won PFA Player of the Year when he was only 23 at Villa, uh, and then you know held, held his own at uh, going to Italy for, for yeah. Bari Juventus, won a couple of trophies, Sampdoria, um, and then ended his club career winning a double at Arsenal. Um, but he the English uh, his actual record for England is is it's better than most strikers, 27 goals in 62 caps. He just, yeah, he, uh, he, for when you talk about people like Lampard and Gerrard, yeah. you know, goal-scoring midfielders, Platt, Platt's record is so much better, but he never gets spoken about. Yeah, he's an odd one, isn't it? Because mm. he really, in that period of time, I and mean, we will talk about this in great detail, well, in better detail later on, but for that period of time, he was England's main man. 
And he was. Well, yeah, he was definitely the most consistent player under under Graham Taylor because it was it was one of the only ones that that actually uh, performed for him. Um, so yeah, and and also the, it, it gets it's often forgotten uh, at Euro '96. Platt um, was dropped just for the tournament, didn't start mm. until the quarterfinals when um, suspension started to happen. And uh, and and against Spain and Germany, he played two of the most mature and disciplined matches of his life. Um, and he, again, never get spoken about, and he scored two penalties and both shoots out, shoot out. So, um, so yeah, I, 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 he doesn't get enough credit for me at all, David Platt. But yeah, def, definitely my favourite. Matthew David Platt underrated, I think so. Definitely, yeah. I mean, we were talking about him on a podcast I did <clears throat> recently about um, Italy '90, and he was obviously pivotal that, in that, that tournament. Yeah. Yeah, and um, again with the, the reruns of the Euro '96 games they showed this summer, again, he, like like Stu says there, you you forgot you forget that he was part of that sort of glorious team and that fantastic era, and then you'd see him crop up in the latter stage of the tournament, and it made you realise what a what a, a stalwart he was really for England, even though his figures, I know he didn't get the, the, the amount of caps that maybe he should have done, but his uh, his ratio was fantastic, and yeah, I liked him. I mean, he was in that sort of. For me, I always liked a sort of surging box-to-box midfielder. I mean, Brian Robson was one of my favourites. And I think Platt was very much in that sort of envelope, really, the sort of you know creative, able to score goals, create goals, tackle. I thought he was a fantastic player. Obviously, why he was one of the players at the time that was picked up and uh, moved moved to Italy in that era when the English top flight wasn't the... Uh, the only show in town, as people think it is now, you know, I mean, it's no surprise that he went to play play his trade in, in Europe because he was just such a fantastic all-round player. So definitely in my list of, uh, sort of I don't I think unsung, underrated might be a bit harsh because he's, he's obviously a well-known. I think underappreciated. Yeah, probably. I think he's under as an especially as an England player because I think he's sort of signifies this era where England ultimately weren't as good as they should have been. I think he sort of not a scapegoat but kind of gets labelled in that box with, of that era. Um, I remember as a kid when he was scoring loads of goals for England, getting bored of him scoring. So that must have been how good he was. <laughs> I, I remember him just going, oh, oh, not David Platt again, mainly because I wanted Les Ferdinand to score all the goals for England because he was one of ours. But but that, that's how consistent he was. He was always scoring for England. And the fact that, as you say, Matthew, he played in Italy when Serie A was the league to be in, James Richardson and all. It says a lot on, and did very well out there for Sampdoria and Juventus and Bari and then did a job for Arsenal when he came back. Not a good manager, though. That has to be said. No, no, no. no. Which a lot of players from that mini era of the 90s seem to suffer from. You look at the Euro 96 team, I always think, other than Gareth Southgate, most of them rubbish managers. But not, not to take away, definitely an, an underappreciated uh, player of the 90s. A good choice there, Stu. Um, quick, very brief chat on Villa in the 90s as well. I mean, kind of an up and... Down, I mean, we've talked about Matthew, with Matthew a lot, the, the opening Premier League season where they just didn't have enough um, to, to challenge United right at the end there and not enough experiences that, that, that goes. What, do you, what are your memories of that period and then going into sort of the late 90s with John Gregory and that sort of team? Um, well, it's, it was the uh, first Premier League season was when I first started going with my dad. My dad started taking me. I live in Doncaster, in South Yorkshire, so it's a bit of a bit of a trek, but he, he took me to as many games as I could go. Um, and the yeah, the, that first year they just seemed to run out of steam near the end. And and the, I mean that the uh, Man United Sheffield Wednesday game was always a bit of a turning point in at the end of that season. Where from then on, Villa just 
capitulated a little bit. And I think United ended up winning the league by some like eight, eight or nine points, which is, and it were a lot closer than that most of the year. Um, but the, the, the two, they made the name as a bit of a cup team in the mid 90s yeah. with uh, winning the league cup twice. Um, I, I can remember being absolutely devastated when Ron Atkinson was uh, sacked. Uh, but then Brian Little came in and you, you forgot all about Big Ron then. So, um, and then, yeah, later on, uh, the, the late night is John Gregory taking over. And um, at the time, because they got him from Wickham, uh, but he, he'd coached at Villa. And it was a case of, you know, can't we do better than this? But to be fair, they never. I don't think they finished lower than sixth or seventh under Gregory either. So um, he got him to an FA Cup final thing in 2000. Um, but yeah, it's it, 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 definitely an up and down uh decade i mean they nearly got relegated in 95 which could have you know really ended everything like so uh so yeah it is yeah you're right with that it's uh it's, it's definitely a bit of a roller coaster decade yeah brian little what sort of a 90s anomaly because <laughs> he can't really you don't really hear of him after that he did the no. job and then did very well like you say at the villa job to a certain extent a bit like mike walker he was a bit more successful than mike walker but it's just a random name that kind of stayed in that decade yeah. um I don't think he managed in the top flight after that. Ash, to be I honest. don't think he did. No. No. I think I saw him the other week. A picture of him, and he still looked almost the same as he did in the nineties. So he's obviously had a you know a brief, a better <laughs> spell of life after that. Well, he, he couldn't have. He couldn't have gone more grey, could he? You no, know, exactly. He was no. Great. Yeah. So where, I'm just looking at his CV. So he last managed twenty, well, lower league in sort of 2016. So he was at Stoke. I don't remember him being at Stoke. West Brom, Hull. But yeah, I mean, Villa is what I uh, mainly remember, obviously, Leicester before that. But yeah, no, Brian Little, very much so. Um, Matthew, quickly on Villa, we've talked about that season. They just didn't have enough, as Stu said there, but a very good, you know, Dalian Atkinson, Kevin Richardson, who got an England cap as well. Some great players at the time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's easily forgotten how close Villa were to, to winning that league. I remember them, I remember being at Old Trafford in that March when uh, Villa came to Old Trafford and uh, it was a 1 1 draw. Steve Staunton scored a memorable goal which I'm sure you uh, you can recall but um you know that that was a great that was a great result really to get a draw away at your title rivals and in, in some ways I suppose you could say it was in Villa's hands at that point but it was just that last that sort of Easter period where if memory serves me right Villa drew and then uh United scored those two late goals at, at, at Sheffield Wednesday so it was almost like a four-point swing was it um yeah I think because, the 2 nil at home to Coventry at the Coventry yeah nil, nil, because it was almost a double I remember coming out of Old Trafford that day and obviously the place was buzzing because of the uh what had happened with the, the Steve Bruce goal but um and then someone obviously knows here those days it was news was late filtering through but then as we left the ground someone said oh Villa had drawn at home so it was almost a double um, celebration so that that kind of put it in United's hand I mean up until then it was uh it was in Coventry's hands, really. So, uh, and then United obviously then had to go on and win. I think they won eight eight in a row or something like that to to really sort of get over the line. There were a few hairy moments, but yeah, no, you know, every credit goes to that Villa team because it wasn't the league table, like you said, Stu. I think United won it by ten points, which kind of tells a, a full story because Villa were incredible that that sort of early part of '93, you know, February March, and it was just just that Easter period that. Um, that, that they slipped up and if, it, if they'd been in that position the year before they would have probably won it because United were the ones that slipped up the year before that that March-April period where they, uh, they they sort of gave away points when they should have won so I mean it, it was it was Villa's turn to to be inconsistent as as was the case but certainly uh, certainly worthy title rivals but and, and, but then sadly didn't really kick on from that but um, no I remember that team with uh, great fondness now obviously at the back then it was a bit they were a bit uh, 
you know, they, they put the wind up a few United fans, but um, looking back now, definitely a team that were worthy title challenges. Mm, definitely so. Well, let's segue from uh, Aston Villa, whose manager left Aston Villa to join England a couple of years early into the 1990s. And we're going to change history now. So take yourself back to Rotterdam that night, England, Holland. Matthew knows where I was watching it in a rainy cabin in the New Forest. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't there, by the way. No, I wasn't there. Oh, it'd be amazing <laughs> if you were. That'd be great. That'd I feel like fun. I was the amount of times we discussed. <laughs> England have qualified for USA 94. Graham Taylor is still the England manager and he's just about to pick his England 23 to go to the States. Um, Stu, you did this brilliant blog on it, which we're going to chat through now. I mean, first, before we get into it, what kind of inspired this? Where did it, the idea come from you to, to put this up? Um, well, I was I was I was born in '83, so this qualifying campaign was pretty much the first one I was fully invested in. Um, I can remember I barely remember retiring nine, so I can remember a lot of Euro '92. But this one was I was quite lucky. My parents had Sky, so I watched. I didn't miss anything. Um, and it's uh, yeah, I can remember just talking about it with my dad. You know, just um, picking our 11s, picking our squads, um, and then it. They didn't qualify, and we never got to, to, to do that. So it just, just something that um, I, it, it would join lockdown. Um, I'd not written anything for a while, so it just, it, I just thought, yeah, why not have a crack at this? And yeah, it's gone down quite well. Yeah, I, I love these sort of things. We've done a lot of pick 11s, pick squads it, over the years on, on the episodes, and it is always fun. Um, I think we get accused of doing too many of them, but I don't think you can never sit there and just sort of pick some sort of team or, or squad. It's, it is a lot of fun. I I did the other day, someone was doing, if you could pick a 23 squad of your team of your lifetime, so basically a QPR squad of 23. That was fun. Um, someone did it by squad numbers as well, which is even more fun, but maybe we'll do that further down the line. Um so let's start at the beginning, as they say. I think the easiest um, way to do this is by position, and that starts probably with the easiest position as well, um, being the, the goalkeepers that were involved at the time. Um, of, so we're talking sort of late, uh, spring 1994, 1993, 94 season. So the, the goalkeepers that you have su- suggested that would have been in the running, Stu, in your, in your blog is Seaman, Flowers, Woods, Nigel Martin. I'll leave the last one just for a second because I think that's a nice anomaly. Um, but I think, Matthew, I think this is probably you've read this and you've got your own um, sort of names you wanted to pick out and stuff. But I think these this is the easiest position to choose the three goalkeepers that you'd probably take, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was a, almost an embarrassment of riches, really, at that time. Yeah. There? I mean, Seaman was the sort of the, the, the natural replacement for for sort of Shilton that had been around for donkey's years and, and Seaman was becoming the, the dominant sort of force in the goalkeeping world at the time and would go on to be part of one of the greatest Premier League teams in, in Arsenal in the in the mid-late 90s. So, yeah, and then you've got obvious uh, sort of challenges for that position or, or places on the bench for Tim Flowers, who obviously was a, would win the league himself with Blackburn a year or so later, and Chris Woods, who was a veteran. I think Chris Woods was in the 86 World Cup squad from... That memory serves me right certainly in world cup 90 so i mean he was always knocking on the door so uh probably a bit of a hard luck story for him really that he never really broke into the england squad and uh again in this tournament he would have probably missed out again although he would have probably been on the plane but um he was always seemed to be destined to be the england backup keeper which was harsh really because anyone that remembers him would would uh, remember him as a, as a really good top goalkeeper but yeah i think um i think there's no arguments at all for the uh for the positions in the squad for the uh, for the goalkeeping shirt from me 
Chris Woods is a funny one, isn't it, Stu? You've mentioned it here, and, and at this point, he was in the latter stages of his career. He was England kind of number one in between sort of Shilton and Seaman, but never really seen established that position, did he? Yeah, he it, it, uh, uh, was the number one keeper at Euro 92. Um, but yeah. then he had he had a couple of of dire games in the qualifica- uh, qualification um, uh, against Holland at home and Norway away. And yeah, he, I think Taylor had started to lose um, lose his faith in him a little bit. Um, and also the problem with Woods in this is uh, from October 1993 in, in, in the World Cup season, um, he lost his place to Kevin Pressman at Sheffield Wednesday. So there's, I, 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 I can't see him personally taking Woods because he wouldn't have been playing. I think Pressman actually, as a wild card, mm. would have had more of a chance, maybe maybe being chucked in a couple of friendlies before. And, but uh, the one we haven't mentioned is Nigel Martin, who... Um, who uh, that season won the first division, uh, the old first division, uh, to get promoted back up with Crystal Palace. So, for me, I think he will be the third keeper. Flowers, like Matthew says, Blackburn had finished second that season. I don't think there's any doubt he'd be on the plane. And Seaman had, had, uh, had waited patiently and he was finally number one. So, so yeah, for the three for me would be Seaman, Flowers and Martin. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because goalkeepers tend to, if they're in the lower leagues, look at Jack Butland. He's He's been in and around the England squad for a lot of the time, even though he's stoken down the championship. That reserve sort of two or three, if you're in the second tier, it doesn't seem to affect you as, as it does with some outfield players. So that may, and you feel like Seaman, Flowers and Martin, those three keepers for the next sort of few years were kind of the three for England, give or take a, a few Anomalies here and there. Um, I think Flowers and Martin unbelievably unlucky to have David Seaman in front of them because they were both in another era, another time. Flowers and Martin could have been England number one for a long time. Um, I think you're right. I think Kevin Pressman is a great wild card. Matthew, what do you remember about Kevin Pressman other than the size of the man? Yeah, he, he was never, uh, never, <laughs> never looked the fittest of uh, goalkeepers. No. He was, he was sort of out of the 1960s school of goalkeeping, wasn't he? In the in the 90s, he, he did have that. That frame, but yeah, I I always thought he was able to pull off some uh, great saves, and um, yeah, I he was he was always there. I mean, that Sheffield Wednesday team were, were a, a funny team in the nineties, weren't they? We've discussed them before, but they were always capable of yeah of causing an upset or finishing in the. You know, I mean, these days these days they would be considered a sort of perennial top six challenges, wouldn't they? I mean, quite often they would be in the in the top three or four of the of the league, but back then it wasn't such a big deal to finish third or fourth whereas you know now it'd be a huge achievement for a for a club like that so yeah he deserves all the all the credit we can we can throw at him but um, yeah I don't think I think the three you know we we definitely would be on that plane as we're going to probably mention a lot in this chat are Seaman Flowers and Martin I mean Pressman deserves a mention as a lot there's always a keeper that deserves a mention but I think in fairness to Pressman that's probably all he's going to get I don't see him forcing his way into this the three that we're probably going to settle on in this discussion really yeah no i think i think we're definitely in agreement for argument's sake i had a look earlier at the appearances and, and top appearance makers under graham taylor chris wood made 27 appearances under graham taylor but i think a lot of that was at the sort of start of his reign um and as we said he was kind of coming towards the end of his career at this point chris woods in the latter stages and as you mentioned Stu, i think graham taylor was losing faith in him but yeah it was interesting to see that he actually he played 27 times under graham taylor during his reign as england manager but yeah i'm happy to to go with the three that we've we've, we've discussed on that one so 
David Seaman, Tim Flowers, Nigel Martin, congratulations, you're on the plane to, to, the US, <laughs> to USA 94. Bloody wish I was as well. Um, let's move on to this. This is, this is where it's going to get tricky. I think goalkeeper was pretty straightforward. Um, defenders. Um, it's an odd time for defenders for England. I think this really is part of the in with the old, out with the kind of, there's two different eras sort of transitioning into each other from, I think Graham Taylor had to kind of deal with, which wasn't fair. There was never really a first choice left back. Lee Dixon filled that role and probably, would, you know, as the Arsenal right back, he wasn't as adequate right back as he was, but there was never a, you know, Gary Neville came along and just took that position off him a couple of years later. Um, I'll go through the names that you've mentioned already, Stu. So we've got Lee Dixon, Paul Parker, Rob Jones, Stuart Pearce, Tony DiRigo, Graham Lasso, Tony Adams, Gary Pallister. You'll never beat Des Walker and Martin Keown. Matthew, kick it off with you. Who would be your dead cert for USA 94? Well, it's a good job you asked me that because I've just written them down. Yeah, um, see, I, I, can tell, <laughs> I can sense that. <laughs> I, I think you'd have to go with... Lee Dixon, knowing what we know now, I mean, he's part. He's still. I mean, it's incredible that he he won twenty two caps for England, didn't he? Which seems incredibly low for a, a yeah. player who was part of one of the the best back fours of. Well, he obviously won the league in eighty nine with that incredible Anfield game, but would go on to be part of one of the you know the top sides of the ninety. So I would I would definitely throw Dixon in there, um, Keown certainly mm. because of, again, this a lot of this is based on hindsight, of course. Uh, why wouldn't it be? But um, yeah, I put Keown in there. I put Pallister in there again because he was part of you know the, the su- most successful defensive back four of of that era alongside the Arsenal defence. So uh, Pallister and Keown, Dixon, and I'd and I'd put um, Paul Parker in there as well for the same reasons. I think, like you said, there's a very much a, an old meets new in this. In the, I mean, it, this whole era was old meets new for England, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. you had the when World Cup '90 finished, there was such a high of, of optimism. You know, is what we could look forward to the future. To the future, but then two years later, the, t- the England team almost seemed a bunch of has-beens that were almost, uh, you know, vilified really. Which is incredible, just when you think of the the optimism that around the England team a couple of years previously. And you've still got a few of those names in in here. I mean, I suppose Stuart Pearce would have to be in that squad as well because we know what he what he went on to to achieve in uh, Euro '96, but um, and Adams as well. So I mean, how many defenders are we picking for this? Uh, oh well, I'll, I'll leave that. I'll, I'll let's go on to Stu because he's picked the squad, so he kind of he's already one step ahead of us. And of those names that Matthews just mentioned, you didn't pick Paul Parker, um, but you. Tell us about the, how many and, and why you went for the. I said one, two, three, four, five. You got seven defenders in that one. Yeah, I think I think because it, it, it's, people forget in '94 there was 22 in a squad, not 23. Mm. So you had uh, it, like versatile defenders are very important in this. Um, so um, yeah, I've, I've got a story about Paul Parker actually. Um, I, I was lucky enough to have two players uh, that were mentioned in, in this article tweet me saying that they'd read it. And one of them was Paul Parker. And, <laughs> oh, was he the best pleased? <laughs> well, he's, he just sent, he sent me um, a message and it just said, uh, he, he said that Graham Taylor told him um, in Rotterdam where, uh, before the Holland away game that uh, if he was fit, he would be on the plane. Mm. So uh, I, I didn't put Parker in it. I put uh, Keon, like Matthew said, I put Keon in it because Keon actually played fullbacks a couple of times um, during the campaign so he showed his versatility but on what Parker said and thinking about it Parker 
is quite a decent centre half. At yeah. I think he played, played there for QPR, didn't he? He did. First. Yeah, he did for a long time. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. So I've, I've, I've actually changed my mind since writing that, and I would have swapped <laughs> Parker and Kim because yeah, I, I, that's what I was going to mention is is Parker's versatility. I mean, he could play centre back, he could play full back. I think he, he played sweeper sometimes. I mean, back in yeah. an era when sweeper was the, the the thing, which was bang on this sort of era, wasn't it? So that's why I was include him as a squad player, just purely because I think in any tournament. Uh, squad you need you need just that a versatile squad player so that would be my only uh, objection really to the to the the final squad you picked was that that Parker was not only part of a great um, United team but able to play fullback centre back and uh, yeah and I think Sweden. that's it Matthew with the obviously United won the double that season so I I can't see thinking about it Taylor ignoring him now um, I, I've picked I've picked seven defenders. Um, out of them, and I, I, I think you're correct with Dixon. He's he won 22 England caps. 21 of them was under Taylor, so yeah. he was. And the 22nd he, was under Howard. Was it the Howard yeah. Wilkinson random yeah, call? Was, yeah. yeah, in 2000. Yeah, yeah, um, and uh, yeah, Pierce definitely. I mean, at the time, um, Pierce was actually Taylor's captain, so mm. Pierce definitely goes. Um, I think, yeah, Pallister, Pallister, 100% goes. Just the fact that, like, say, successful United side that season, and he did play. The majority of the qualifiers, Pallister, and it's same with Adams as well. I think um, after the early nineties, when um, Adams was Adams was unavailable, um, and then later on Taylor decided to pick him again. And those two, I think, I think the final five or six qualifiers, those two were the pairing. Um, so th- I, I think they definitely go. I think the Des Walker had lost form. He'd had a torrid time in Italy. Yeah, um, he when he was there, and he, de- he definitely knocked his confidence. And he, he had he had some dreadful games in qualification, but. I think Taylor had his favourites, and I think he might have been loyal to Walker and, and taken him. Um, and the only other the other the other spot that I've got is is Duigo uh, as a backup left back because I, I think it would try. He took Duigo and Pierce to Euro '92. Duigo and Pierce also went to Italian '90, and I think Leeds finished fifth in '94. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think just as a backup and just because of tournament experience, he took Duigo as well. And, and being yeah. a thorough, thoroughly good guy as well, because we know Ash, don't we? we? Tony joined us for a live show a couple of years ago, and he was a great company. So maybe worth show, a, yeah. maybe worth a place on the on the plane just for that. But um, I think maybe I think maybe that's the one position. Maybe the looking at your final choices: Dixon, Pierce, Dorigo, Adams, Pallister, Walker, Keir. And I, I wonder whether Dorigo might be threatened by uh, Paul Parker after I've sort of said that Parker had to be in the squad. For his versatility, it might be Diorigo that um, that would actually miss out unless he just came along for the uh, for the company. Yeah, yeah. Well, which he basically did for the previous two tournaments as yeah. well. He never, he never played. Maybe that's why uh, they took him. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to play the, the annoying, let's throw a few names in there, person. Um, firstly, selfishly, because I think there was a dearth at right back, but versatility being the key, the only other right back that I would say, and yes, I'm going to bias this all over this, David Bardsley, who was brilliant for QPR that season, um, had two caps under Graham Taylor, the only time he ever got England caps, vastly underrated, vastly undercapped, as was Clive Wilson, but he never got near an England squad, so I can't even justify saying his name. Um, always think it's weird Nigel Winterburn doesn't give a shout in these things, never really done it at, or given a chance at international level. Another friend of the show as well. Another friend of the Yeah, I'm just going basically through everyone who's been on our live shows. Um, you're talking to friends, Matty. Mark Wright is somebody who Graham Taylor overlooked for most of his reign. He did have injuries for yes. quite the that's middle an, section. That's an interesting point. And, um, you know, I've been watching a lot of the Italy 90, like um, like probably everyone else in the 
nation has. And I thought Bright was really good in that tournament and sort of grew into it and became a really established member of the squad. And again, was versatile, was able to play that sweeper role. And, you know, when, when defenders were, yeah, a sort of culture defender was quite a novelty back then. And um, I was thinking what a, a great part of that team he was. So, yeah, I think... I think there's an argument for for having him in this team. So maybe maybe we w- would have to look at maybe, you know, maybe he could have replaced Des Walker if Des Walker wasn't in the greatest right. of form, yeah. having come back. And um, yeah, I, maybe maybe well, right. I think I think I think with Walker, I think you're right with form wise. I think absolutely Mark. But the, I think the problem you might right was um, when in Euro '92 he was named in the squad, uh, but he wasn't truthful about his injury. And he basically, uh, by the time he announced he was injured, it was too late to bring a replacement up. And I think that really annoyed Taylor. And I don't think he picked him afterwards. Mm, so yeah. I, th- I think that worked against him, and it, whether it's right or wrong, because he, he certainly didn't feature in any of the qualification for USA 94. Yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so yeah. that's probably shot yourself in the foot with that. 31 appearances for Liverpool that season. So he, he had a good season. I think if... The difference, as we should have said at the start, that this is what we think Graham Taylor would have picked. If I was picking it, I probably would have taken Wright over Keown, just given his international experience, the fact that Wright had been at Italia 90, Keown had only yeah. had a few caps. And we're basing that. it on hindsight as well. I mean, we know oh, that course, Keown went yeah. on to become, a, but whereas at this point, he probably wasn't at, at his peak, like you say, with Wright and the experience. I mean, remember, Mark Wright was in the World Cup 86 squad. Yep, exactly. But broke his leg in the Cup FA Cup semi-final. So, you know, he was knocking around the, the tournaments for quite a while. So, yeah, the, in terms of experience, then, yeah, it's difficult to understand why Seth Taylor wouldn't pick him, apart from what Sue just said there, the, you know, maybe a personal personal reason. But on paper, <clears throat> on paper, he's certainly, a, you'd think he was a, an automatic choice. Yeah. Um, and the only other name that I've got on my list, which is the perennial, why didn't he ever get a cap for England? Steve Bruce. Strange. So yeah. strange. We've talked about it a lot on here. Like Gary Pallister, although he was PFA Player of the Year the season before, I think. Was that the season? It was yeah, 1990, I think. Was that the season he won the PFA? I can't remember the top of my head. He got more caps. But for some reason, every England manager didn't like Steve Bruce, which was very strange. Um, but I think on hindsight and going back, what we said, yeah, I think we'll add Paul Parker. We, I mean, as there are 23 names. We have got a spare spot. So maybe we saved it to the end to decide if Paul Parker replaces someone or we add him in. Let's see how we get on. And before we move on to the midfield, we've got an interview to play as well for you on this episode of Alive and Kicking. An absolute pleasure. One of those interviews where you get a little bit kind of fandom in you because he's such a big name from the 1990s. I was lucky enough this week to speak to John Barnes, who very much in the zeitgeist of this podcast. Unfortunately, I was just about to ask him about this 1994 era of England when our time ran out and the, the we had to switch tact to more current affairs. However, we do talk about Italian 90, uh, his time at Liverpool during the 90s, and of course, World in Motion. How could I talk to John Barnes and not talk about World in Motion with him? So here's me talking to John Barnes earlier this week with thanks to Now TV. Let's take you back then to, to the 1990s. Um, we call it the decade that, that changed football forever. You were obviously a massive part of that. 1990, I mean, that was quite apt because it was the last time Liverpool won the league. What are your memories of that team, that season? It feels for me like that was slightly the end of an era for Liverpool. Um, how, how do you look back upon that season now? 
Well, it's only looking back, you think it's the end of an era, and you understand it was an end of an era. At the time, you didn't think it was going to be an end of an era. Yeah. Um, I look back at that time, 1990, it's the same I looked at 1987, 88, um, 89, and 90. It was the same team. We're doing the same things. Arsenal beat us in 89, but we're still hot. Yeah. <laughs> One minute away from winning the league, so we did it the following year. and then the fo so. But then all of a sudden, it's a big change of football in the decade, as you say, because the Premier League came in. And once the Premier League came in, football changed. Because if you look at in the 80s and football ever since, up until, up until 1992, teams didn't just buy players to try and win. You know, you organically worked with the players you had. And those players, Brian Robson, best player in England, England captain, was at Man United, finishing fifth or wherever they were finishing. He didn't leave because he wanted to go to a top team to win the league. He stayed at that team to help. So Glenn Holland, you had players at the clubs. Whereas once the Premier League started, the clubs with the money then, then started to try and buy the best players to then pay for your club. And that is what happened when all of a sudden, once that happened, you had a rapid turnover of players every single year. Whereas in the old days, Liverpool, as an example, Liverpool had the same nucleus of players for 10 years. One or two players came in. They then stayed Then one or two. Whereas, of course, once the 90s came, 92, 91, 92, Liverpool and other clubs were signing six, seven players every year. And then did they get the history of the club, the traditions, the way that the Liverpool ways or the Man United were they are? That's the way things were changing. And for Liverpool, who were the top team, things changed for Arsenal for the better, for Manchester United for the better. But for Liverpool, who were the top team at that time, it didn't change for the better because things changed. Those teams could improve. Yeah. We never necessarily had to improve in terms of the personnel. But then that kind of like took a, down, a downward spiral. Mm. I felt like when Graham Sooners came in in 92, it was like a constant transitional period for Liverpool of that team. You were kind of still at the centre of it. And then the new team. What was it at the time that never got Liverpool to that next level in that decade? Well, as I said, if you look from the 80s, when Ronnie Whelan and Ian Rush came in in the early 80s as young players, you had a nucleus of a squad. Ronnie Whelan and Ian Rush came in to learn the Liverpool way, which came from Bill Shankly. Then when they became older, new players came in to learn the Liverpool way. Then all of a sudden, once you have seven, six, seven players leaving Liverpool in 92, of the senior players, and then six players coming in from all over different places who were good players individually, but then... What is the Liverpool way? Who's going to teach them the Liverpool way? How do they learn from that? And there was no one there. So things then changed. Great individual players, but the Liverpool weren't the team they were anymore. Um, and that's the way football was going. You yeah. know, because with, you know, and then every single year you started to sign more players. Um, so Alex Ferguson was allowed in his first four years to develop and build. And then he did something similar to what Liverpool did. Kept the nucleus of a squad for years, 10, 15 years. One or new, two new players came in at the time. And, but the Manchester United way continued. Then, obviously, once he left, you can see what happened to Manchester United. And now, fortunately for us, Jurgen Klopp, as much as I think Brendan Rodgers was harshly treated because he was a very good manager who, you know, I'm not saying he could have done what, what, what Jurgen Klopp did, but he, if he was supporting more, we, we, we would have been okay. But Jurgen has now been given the power by the fans to then create something new that everybody has to buy into. And he's brought back this humility, this attitude of togetherness, no superstars in the team. It's all about the team, regardless of whether we play Man City, or, or Norwich, we played the exact same way, we trained the exact same way, we were a humble team. And he, so he's brought back a, a, a new Liverpool way that people understand. I have to ask you um, about the 96 Cup final. I mean, that squad was unfairly tagged the Spice Boys, um, the white suits. I mean, what were your feelings on those suits? And cream kind of suits. Tag as well, I mean, a cream. cream. Sorry, they were cream. <laughs> as, if, as, if, as if that makes it any better. <laughs> you were a unfair man. tag. Look, when you, when you lose... Yeah. If we won with cream suits and Ray-Bans, we would have been cool. But when you lose, you're stupid. And when you don't win the league with the players that we actually 
have we're the spice lords but in terms of our young players who are good professionals who wanted to do well but of course like footballers young single footballers that are going out Ryan Giggs and David Beckham and those players yeah. were much different but because they're winning no one says mm -hmm. that and they're in an environment which Alex Ferguson which Radio has brought, in, brought them up in a much more disciplined way than the Liverpool environment because Liverpool environment was never one for um, Liverpool football clubs to, to, to inst insist on players behaving themselves Never yeah. from Bill Shankly's time. But what they had was players who knew how to perform, even if they were out the night before, more so in training, how to train every single day to enable them to win on a Saturday. Whereas if your attitude is that you take care of yourself, you do what you want, but you perform, when you have young players, that's not the way to be brought up. You can't say to a young 17-year-old, you go and do what you want and then play. That's why Liverpool never had a young team in history. From the 80s, 70s, 80s, yeah. they had one or two young players with senior players who taught them what to do. If you get lots of young players and you say to them, do what you want, then they won't be brought up in the right way unless they have a manager like for Alex Ferguson because that was his philosophy in terms of bringing them up. So we weren't any different to the Man United players. It's just that they were winning and we weren't. So we got on fairly tight. As much as I was a spike or because I'm too old. <laughs> <laughs> you say that though, um, there were a couple of moments, definitely, or a few moments in the 90s. I remember vividly from you, the, the goal in the 4-4 Everton, the, one of my favourite goals of that era, top corner. Um, mm. That pass to Collymore in the famous 4-3. Do you have a moment of that decade for you domestically that you always remember? No, I've never remember. I remember my whole career. I remember the longevity. I remember the consistency. I remember you take the good and the bad and then you average it out. Because, of course, when I ruptured my Achilles tendon of 28 in 92, I became a different player. So I could play midfield and make passes rather than being the player. But I was equally as happy to be playing and, and contributing in a different way, not yeah. getting the praise from the fans as I did before. But I understood that, well, this is football. I, I, I was lucky to play again because the, 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 the doctor actually said to me when I retired, he didn't tell me at the time because it wouldn't have been a good thing to tell me that. But he thought I wouldn't play again when they saw the rupture on my kiddies tendon because it was such a bad one. Um, but I look at my whole career, um, and that is what consistency is about. That is what um, when it, uh, people talk about the Liverpool team now. Um, they do this for eight, nine years. They're one of the greatest teams ever. They do this for two years. They get finished seventh next year and do nothing else. How great is this team? They've had a good season. So I always look at the consistency over a period of time to tell me who I am. So I don't look at individual moments at all. Um, I want to talk about England as well quickly. Um, 1990, we're now 30 years ago. It's a big celebration here and there going on. I've seen podcasts and things like that. What does Italia 90 mean to you and how close England really were to, to, to winning that World Cup? Oh, I mean, we're, we're very close to getting to the final. Uh, we don't know what would have happened in the final to say yeah. winning it. But what that England team did is what England team do now. We maximise our potential. We were never the best team in the world. So to expect us to win the World Cup was unrealistic. We could have, because we beat Germany. Of course we can win the Cup final. But to then say we should win the cup final, no, because they're great teams. You know, you have Brazil, Germany, you've got lots of great teams. And in many respects, what that team had was a togetherness and a spirit and a determination. Because while we may look at Germany, which is our best performance, when we should have won and we lost, yeah. we were lucky against Belgium. Belgium were the better team, but we won. Cameroon were 2-1 up. And then Cameroon went down to 10 men stupid because they were naive. Yeah. So that team, out of adversity, when things aren't going well, we got the job done. And that is what Liverpool do now. Because this year... They haven't necessarily played well all the time, but they've got the results, which is what the sign of a good side. So, and what helped us was our togetherness and our spirit and determination in 1990. We always ask guests who have played during that era of a Gaza story. Um, have you got a Gaza story from that sort of time you could share with us that's kind of PC-ish allowed? <laughs> um, from 1990. Well, there are lots of Gaza stories. I suppose my favourite Gaza story would be in the, in, the, in the World Cup warm-up. Um, no, before we actually go to the World Cup. Uh, no, 
I've got so many Gaza stories. I'm thinking I want to tell you a clean one. <laughs> this one, I don't know if you heard this one before. Of course, this, before the semi-final against Germany, Gaza's a really nervous player, so Gaza can't sleep. Yeah. So, I can't remember what day it was, but the night before the game, Gaza couldn't sleep. And then, and Bobby Robson was asking to tell us the next day. Um, Bobby Robson got a call at four o'clock in the morning that Gaza is playing tennis against two drunk Americans <laughs> on the grounds in Italy where we were. Yeah. So Bobby Robson went down at four or five o'clock and he had to chase Gaza around because Gaza was running to get to go to bed because Gaza said he was in his room and he can't sleep because Gaza is a very nervous person. And he said he looked out of the window and he saw some, some drunk Americans. So he went down to see, talk to them and they said, let's have a game of tennis. Two drunk Americans. So Gaza says, I'll play against you too. And he had two sets of tennis. This is, now this is the morning of the semi This is the morning of the match. And he goes and he plays um, two sets of tennis against two drunk Americans. So that's one of the ones I can tell you. Yeah. So you can imagine if that's if that's one of the if that's one of the the, 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 the tamer ones, you can imagine what the other ones are. <laughs> I can indeed. Um we have to ask you about world emotion as well. I mean, for me I always compare it to the English version of the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. It's like if you're in this country and you don't know every word, then there's something yeah. wrong with you. It's like the rap. I mean, it must mean a lot to you. I mean, where's the weirdest place you've had to kind of get on stage and, and sing the rap? And do you still enjoy it as much as you did thirty years well, ago? Probably probably at the um Champions League final fan park where Liverpool played um, um, against Tottenham uh, the other week. Uh, so yeah, that's probably the greatest place. But the song, is, it's an interesting story with the song because there's only six of us turn up to do the song. The rest of the team didn't turn up but they all went to the pub because they thought the song was going to be rubbish. We didn't know it was going to be with New Order. We thought it was just going to be a typical here we go, cup final yeah, song type of thing. Yeah. yeah, so when Bobby Robson said you don't have to meet up with the squad on Sunday, Players hated meeting up Sunday because that's when they wanted to go to the pub. So when Bobby Robson says, go to the studio and do this, this song, the players thought, well, the song's going to be rubbish, so we're not going to go. So me, Gaza, Peter Beardsley, Chris Waddle, Des Walker, Steve McMahon, they're the only six who did the song. When it got to number one, did you see them all on the video? Yeah, <laughs> and even Bobby was on the video. But truth be known, there was, they didn't even do the song. And look at the back of the record, it'll say special thanks to these six. Uh -huh. So the song was finished, and there was even no rap. It was not, there's no rap in the song. It's New Order, they're not a rap group. But of yeah. course... There was a few alcoholic beverages there um, and everyone was a little bit drunk. Keith Allen was there. So they said, why don't we just write a rap? So he just wrote a rap and the song was finished. So we all had a rap off. Everybody had to go out the rap. Gaza, Peter Beardsley. And of course, with Gaza and Peter Beardsley being from Newcastle, Steve McMahon being a Geordie, Chris Waddle being a Geordie, Steve McMahon being a scout, so sorry. It was between me and Des, so I got to do the rap. <laughs> <laughs> and it's gone down in folklore. Man. Final question for you then. We always ask guests if they've kept any memorabilia bit of strange memorabilia from the career. I've got a little John Barnes figure here uh, from back in the day. Do you have anything like that you've kept or are you not that sort of person? No, I'm not a memorabilia person, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> I'm sure I've got some shirts in the loft or something somewhere. Um, a a player, player of the Year trophy, PFA Player of the Year. I'm sure, I'm sure it's somewhere, but uh, no. But I still have it. Um, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for talking to us, John. We look forward to seeing the new season on Now TV. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to John Barnes there. Remember, if you want to enter the Now TV competition, you only have a few hours to do so. Um, it go, this pod drops on Thursday. You've got till the midnight tonight to enter that competition and you can win a watch along with one of your favourite footballers, either John Barnes or Pierre Schmeichel, on this weekend's Premier League games. So just head to nowtv.com for all more details to enter and all the other deals they've got on the new Premier League. Well, the 
old but new Premier League season that we've got for the rest of the month and July. Um, let's get back to our squad then. Let's talk midfield. Um, again, what I'll do, I'll go through the names that Stu mentioned on this excellent blog and then we'll sort of pick bones at who would be or who wouldn't be. Um, Paul Gascoigne is the difficult one because do we go with what actually happened? Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, David Platt, as you mentioned, Paul Ince, Paul Merson, Colton Palmer, Lee Sharp, Andy Sinton, Darren Anderton, John Barnes, David Batty, Letitia, Rob Lee and Chris Waddle. Let's do it as we did before. I liked that format. Matthew, who would be of that list that Stu's put together your sort of Stonewall picks for the squad? Well, Stonewall picks, I would say probably... Well, the, the first three mentioned in, in the blog, Gascoigne, and again, it's difficult, isn't it? Because we're we're talking about talking about this as we know things happened, you know, what happened in the past. Whereas this, if Graham Taylor was picking this team, he wouldn't know what we know now. If you, if, yeah, if that course, makes yeah. sense. But but for purely for his you know ability and uh, what what he could do, then certainly Gascoigne, Platt, we've already you know eulogised about what a what a top player he was and. Uh, Definitely one of the first names on the team sheet, on the plane, whatever we want to say. Ince as well, part of a fantastic United side, um, you know, and a, a midfielder that just grew and grew in the in the 90s. Um, so definitely those three would be my sort of first names on the team sheet. After that, I think we're kind of we're sort of entering into debatable territory because all the names that Stu's mentioned, you can, you can almost make a case for them and then make a case against them. I mean, yeah. We heard from John Barnes there. I mean, I love John Barnes. I think he's one of the greatest players I've ever seen, <clears throat> ever. Um, you know, one of the greatest talents in English football. But I mean, in this era, was he the was he the sort of John Barnes that we know of? When we look back at him in the sort of late eighties, early nineties, probably not. So whether whether he would have made this squad based on sentimentality, probably yes. But on ability and uh, you know his, his the injuries he suffered in the mid-90s, um, possibly not. So I think we could almost, apart from those three I've mentioned, um, Gaza, Platt and Ince, I think the rest are sort of up there for debate, especially when you include people like, I mean, Sinton would obviously always be in there because he's a left-sided player. And obviously there's only there was only one left-sided player in England in the 90s, it seemed, and that was Andy Sinton. But, and um, brilliant. <laughs> yes, and he was good, yeah. Uh, and he scored a goal on Monday, the first Monday night football. But, he um, did, yeah. Um, Anderton we know went on to excel as part of the Euro 96 squad but we didn't know that at the time so uh, it's all yeah. it's, it's buts and maybes which is the beauty of this discussion I suppose isn't it Yeah, Anderton's an interesting one actually Steve because you've obviously picked him and he wasn't capped at that point by Graham Taylor but he obviously would win his first cap under Terry Venables but had a great season for Spurs young um, English midfielder is that why you think by the time we'd rolled around to the spring Taylor may have included him yeah, I think I think most most tournament squads you do tend to get somebody new, and yeah. Taylor was very set in his ways. Like I say, very loyal to certain players, and I just think looking at who was available, I mean, it's going to sound daft when you come onto the strikers, but I think the only <laughs> yeah. newbie um, yeah. that he would have he would because I think the right hand side's open for, for for an option because there's there's nobody really. I mean, you could you could maybe put Paul Merson out there, but as an actual winger. I think I think I think it's there for Anderton to take if he if if everything goes like it did. So and Venables picked him I think in March '94. So so at that that point I think Taylor would have noticed him um, and get and gave him a chance. Um, but I, I think uh, yeah I, I think Matthew was right in the 
in the dead. So it's the, the I, I haven't put Gascoigne in because he had a broken leg. I've, I've, yeah. I've gone for I've gone for people who, if we're going by that sort of timeline, yeah. were available. But obviously, Platt, uh, Platt 100%. Ince, I mean, it turned out to be so important under under Taylor. It's where he established himself. I think it, it, I think he capped England in just his seventh match, which is incredible. Um, and then yeah, he's right after that. See, I, I think I think Barnes would probably be a, the next one to be a dead search I mean, just because of Taylor's history with him um, his experience and, yeah. yeah yeah his experience I think I know he, he started to go more centrally for Liverpool but then because he, he didn't have the same pace on the left wing but uh, Taylor uh, he carried on with him throughout the qualification if he was available Barnes was picked so um, so yeah so I would probably say Barnes is pretty much a dead search and then after that um, <clears throat> I mean he gets he gets a lot of uh, a lot of uh, criticism but um I, I think Carl I think hundred percent he would I think he would have picked Carlton Palmer hundred percent yeah hundred um, percent he played um, I think eighteen times under Graham Taylor and I think that's the yeah, yeah the most other than David Platt the most catch midfielder under yeah Graham and he, he gets a, he gets a I, I, he gets criticised but he, he was a decent player Palmer yeah and um he when I was talking about two um England players at the time who tweeted me Palmer was the other one and uh, he uh, he. He said, he said, he said, oh, it's pretty much spot on what he depicts. But then he continued to send me three or four more tweets of his experiences without me replying to him. Um, so he was like, it, it, it was like I touched a nerve, and you could tell he was still devastated at the fact that he um, he'd missed out, he missed his only chance to play in the World Cup. Um, so yeah, but it, it definitely, yeah, it definitely touched touched a nerve with Palmer, uh, seeing it or brought it all back to him because he was he was talking about. Um, the, how unfair it was on Taylor talking about at the beginning of the campaign England had to play um, I think three or four games at home at first because the Wembley was getting redone the year after you mentioned that a couple of times and yeah he's, he, he's it def, definitely still affects Palmer to this day yeah we can imagine this but I, I think he gets unfairly tagged when you talk about Graham Taylor's era him and Keith Curl yeah, and I was I was going to say, sorry, you know, we, there's, a, there's a, a tendency to sort of look back and smirk at the Graham Taylor England team and squads, but, yeah, mostly partly because they were, had a terrible Euro 92 and then didn't qualify for the World Cup. You've got to remember these were the best team, best players available at the time. You know, Absolutely. So it's not, it's not, it's easy to look back and, and sort of say, well, why the hell did he pick him and why did he pick him? But, I mean, in terms of what was available, these were the top quality players at the time. So it's, you've always got to remember that when, when you know, slipping into that, that sort of smirk and that looking back with a, a, a wry smile. I think you, you have to remember what was on the table at the time. Yeah, yeah. I, and I do think Ash, I think I think Sinton goes. I think yeah, I, I think I think it's a toss up between him and Lee Sharp. But Sinton was named in every single squad for that qualification campaign. So Taylor obviously rated him. Yeah. Um, Sharp and obviously. United won the double, but he was always behind Giggs or Kanchowskis, wasn't he, on the uh, yeah. on the bench for United. So I, I think he, I think he would have gone with Sinton out of those two. And then the last one for me would be Batty, which I think is basically just a backup for Ince. But I would, I, I think he would have took Batty. Yeah, I think of the others that you mentioned there, I, I can't see them forcing their way above anyone else. I think it might have been a year too early for Rob Lee, who had a great season for Newcastle. Um, Letizia is uh, again one of those funny ones that. Some England managers decided that he was right. I mean, Terry Venables will give him a cap in the following campaign, but some managers didn't. He's, he's a bit of a liability in terms of where you play him, so I'm not sure he would have made it. I agree I agree with you, Andy Sinton. Um, I'm not just because of my biasism, because I Taylor loved him. And underrated, um, he 
was never the fastest winger. He wasn't a Tony Daly. He wasn't even a John Barnes in his pomp, but could get across a man and had a great, great cross on him as well. Um, you know, and let talk to Les Ferdinand about how many goals were laid on a plate to him because of Andy Sinton. And, and he'll tell you there's a lot of them. So, yeah, I think Andy Sinton makes the plane. Um, but I think really the, the, the guys you've picked there, and where you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, and eight, is probably as close as we're going to get. I don't think there's a case. Lee Sharp, possibly, but as you say, I think Sinton will get the nod. The only other wild card. Chris, Chris Waddle? Chris Waddle, yeah, I think Stu mentions him in his blog there. Um, he was he was at Sheffield Wednesday at the time, wasn't he? Had suffered with injury, I think that season. Yeah, but... he missed. I think he missed the last sort of ten, fifteen games for Wednesday that season. Um, so I, yeah, I, the, I mean, he was criminally underused, Waddle. Anyway, I, he, I don't think Taylor picked him from ninety one onwards, even though he was, you know, playing in European Cup finals for Marseille. So yeah, it's, he, I, I think Taylor must have had some sort of problem with Waddle because he came back to England and. And lit the place up for Sheffield Wednesday, and he still didn't get a nod. So, um, so yeah, I, 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 yeah, I just I, I felt that they need to mention Waddle because I think you know he should have been in with a shout, but um, but yeah, obviously I don't, I don't think Taylor fancied him too much anymore. I, I think I would have taken him. This was my England squad just because I know I think it, at a chance what he could produce, what a player even at that age. And I mean, he was Player of the Year in '93, wasn't he? I believe mm. he was on the Football Writers Player of the Year in '93. Um, so he was still he still had it in his locker. Um, the only other name I could even try and put up a silly argument against was Stuart Ripley, who actually got a cap in Graham Taylor's last game. Yeah, the so, San Marino game. The yeah. San Marino game, and obviously had a great season for Blackburn when they finished second and and became that sort of supply line for Alan Shearer. I wonder if he may have got a bigger look in under t- if Taylor continued in the friendlies. Maybe not enough to push his way past a lot of those names, but I, he was somebody that I could sort of throw in maybe a Stuart Ripley didn't really get and and sort of acknowledge the following campaign under Terry Venables Ebury and only won two England caps and Alan Shearer is so complimentary about him as well isn't he yeah. whenever he talks about that season he always says what a great you know supply line he had and the reason he was always scored so many goals as with all strikers you need that supply line so for every great striker you need there's always a good uh, you know a good good creator and he, he was definitely one of those so yeah and and he was up and coming and, and a lot of these players that we're looking at were sort of on the way down I mean you know Waddle was sort of on a on the way out and we could say Barnes was on the on the cusp so I mean Ripley would have been the one of the new pretenders in in the squad so yeah maybe possibly possibly above Anderton maybe you know yeah, he, yeah. He, if, if he's already got the cap he, he um, Taylor might have had him in his thinking anyway so yeah possibly Possibly a Ripley, but yeah, I, I don't know if I was being a bit pedantic, but he's worth he's worth throwing in there for the discussion. Um, I think for the moment, this key, I think we'd probably keep to what you've gone there, which is Platt, Ince, Merson, Palmer, Sinton, Anderton, possibly straight Ripley, Barnes and Batty. As it's a 22, I think Gascoigne is our 23rd man because we're doing this in hindsight. Obviously, he was injured, but I think if Gaz was fit, he would have gone. Like yeah, yeah, I think that's fair enough. Yeah, I think it's 100. Gaza would have gone. He's the, you know, he was the, he was the star player um, for that England team of that era. So I think we'll leave that, and that may mean that we have the choice to make in defence. But we'll do that afterwards. Um, now to the the you know the plethora of options that England had, which is what, when I think of this, why we didn't qualify for USA '94, and you think of the strikers that Graham Taylor had at his disposal was absolutely ridiculous. Um, let's go through the list that you sort of outlined, um, Stu. So you've got Alan Shearer, Les Ferdinand, Ian Wright, Teddy Sheringham, Nigel Clough, Andy Cole, Peter Beardsley and Chris Sutton. So, Matthew, go on then. Who are the, the picks? Who goes? 
I just, I mean, look at, like you say, I mean, looking at this list, I mean, so many of those strikers, if you're looking in Premier League terms, top flight terms, so many of them were absolutely phenomenal, weren't they? Shearer, yeah. Ferdinand, Wright, Cole. But when you think of their England career, they were almost nearly men. I mean, Andy Cole never really did it for England, did he? Um, Ian Wright never really was seen as an England striker. Chris Sutton, for all his goals at, in the Premier League, never an England name it's incredible oh. to think that's that's the case when you see them written down like this <clears throat> um i cheated chris, slightly well, chris but, Sutton, uh, shot himself in the foot didn't he because he turned down england b under glenn hoddle didn't he i think that was well, the reason yeah well. well i'm sure yeah but you know that could easily be forgotten about if you the player's good enough you know we've, all, we've seen players come back from from worse than that but <clears throat> i mean looking at the looking at the four that stewart's picked i mean shearer ferdinand wright beardsley you can't assuming we're picking four you, you can't really see who you'd swap out for that. I mean, Shearer is my definite go-to man. Um, Beardsley, we know, went on to sort of still have a lot to offer in the the couple of seasons that followed this. I mean, he was he was great in that Newcastle Entertainers team and a, and a, a you know a, a supply line in himself, not so much a striker, but a, a great forward player. So the only other the two you could really debate, I suppose, are Ferdinand and Wright, and it would just be a case of who you would swap those out for. I mean, Cole was on fire. So I mean, maybe. yeah, that's that that would be my argument. I think if that was a World Cup year and we would qualify, and the fact that Andy Cole was top scorer, top assister in the Premier League, the young player of the year, I think there would be a big. The fact that he didn't play for Man United at that point as well, he played for a Newcastle team everyone liked. I think there would have been a big call for him to be included that Taylor may have bowed down to. Who who he'd go. Maybe in place of Beardsley, given the age difference, you have to, uh, you know, having Andy Cole on the bench to come off if need be, I think may may have swayed Taylor. I don't know. What do you think, Stu? You've picked that. Uh, yeah, I, my, my, I just, it is ridiculous because if I was going to pick it on what I thought, I would take, I mean, Cole's got to be one of the first names in the whole squad yeah. for what he's done that season. But I, I just I just don't think Taylor would have picked him. I, I, I agree what you're saying. I mean, if this happened now, if if, some, if an English striker came um, and scored 34 Premier League goals, it, there would be absolutely no doubt about him going to a major tournament. Um, but the, it's a lot says about Taylor's um, reign, but it's worth saying never before or since have England had so many informed strikers to choose from. There were so six, six, including including Letizia, there were six Englishmen who scored over 20 Premier League goals that season. He could um, even throw Robbie Fowler into the mix. I, I was just going to say that. Yeah. Was this just on the cusp of Fowler breaking? Yeah, I think, yeah I think Fowler, I, I think later, 93, 94, I think he started to come on. But I, 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 well, I'm sure I looked and he, he'd only played some like 15 yeah. um, league games or something. It would have been an early pick, but even you, yeah. you go the next level down, and even someone like Kevin Campbell, I think he scored like 19 goals that season. It's like even the next level down was was so it was an embarrassment of riches. Yeah, I think I think with uh, when you're on about Be- I, th- I think Beardsley goes simply because he's different to the other strikers. I think I think if Cole does go, I think either Ferdinand or Wright come out. Um, but Taylor likes both Ferdinand and Wright as well. I mean, um, yeah, Ian Wright I think Ferdinand Ferdinand scored three in his first five games for, I know a couple of them against San Marino, but he still, still scored. And also uh, I think Ian Wright's the most capped striker under Taylor, I think. Um, so uh, yeah. And you know, he's it, well you know, in that documentary when he's like, he's made for right to come on. Um, he said he, he, I think he would have took Ian Wright as some sort of super sub. Um, so, so yeah, I, it's, it's difficult. I, like I said, I, I would, Cole has to go, but I, I really don't think, 
Taylor would have mixed his squad up that much, especially the strikers he liked. I think he would have brought Beardsley back. I mean, he didn't play Beardsley from, I think, 1991, I think. So he's, when he were at Everton and stuff like that, but I don't think he would have ignored Beardsley for scoring over 20 Premier League goals, but just because of how different he is to the other strikers. Mm. No, it's, it's a difficult one. I, th- I think I'm with you. I think I personally would have taken Andy Cole, but I think, as you say, Graham Taylor was vastly loyal. And you're right, I think, other than Gary Lineker, who obviously had retired at this point, who played 21 times uh, for Taylor, next one down was Ian Wright in terms of strikers. Yeah. He played for fi- he played 15 times um, under, under Graham Taylor, so he definitely would have taken him. Um, I was... On that, I was watching one of those match of the day top 10 things the other week that they've been doing in this um, break we've had of the Premier League. And right, he was talking about when he wasn't taken to Euro 96. And I never really thought about that at the time. But again, we had such an embarrassment of riches. But he was saying how gutted he was to miss Euro 96. But we haven't even mentioned someone who was on that squad, like Teddy Sheringham, who, again, was on the cusp really 93, 94 and wouldn't really come to the fore for England for another 18 months. But you could kind of say he would have a shout as well. I mean, you could go on all day about the strikers. I was just going to say that you, when you're picking strikers, you almost need to think of this as a combination, don't you? I know it's an old yeah. cliche, but who you can't necessarily put Shearer and Cole up front, you know, where you could no. do and it would be yes. great. But, you know, you've got, a, you've got players like Sheringham and, I mean, Beardsley and Lineker in that sort of 86, 90 era, you know, was uh, that the beauty of that was, you know, Beardsley wasn't the the goal poacher that Lineker was and they, they work well. And, um, you know, you so say you've got to try and find that, that combination that works. So, I mean, looking at, looking at the four that Stuart's gone with, I mean, Beardsley would be that, that sort of number, what would he have been? I suppose a number 10 figure they'd call him now, wouldn't they? Sort of deep, deep line. And yeah, Sheringham might be the only other one that you could maybe swap in there for the, as the sort of, you know, the, the supplier rather than the, the poacher. Yeah, it'd have also t- taken Merson. So Merson sometimes played as a second yes. striker just off yeah. the front. So that's another option to tailor there. So he's probably because I think Merson's Merson is going. So I, I don't yeah. think I don't think there's any question about him. So I, I think he'd have to consider that when picking his strikers as well. I I, I agree, but I agree about Sheringham. You don't I think he'd only played twice on the tail though, Sheringham. So um, it's whether yeah, I think yeah, it's, it's whether we thought it was early enough. Yeah, definitely early for Teddy. Um, I was just checking the stats here. I can't even find. I think it is here. I think it is twice. And um, the other name you mentioned is Nigel Cuff as well, who's somebody who Graham Taylor really did put a lot of faith in. He went to Euro 92. Perhaps by this point had been absurd with some of the other strikers who were pure goal machines, but he definitely would have had a shout because I think he was. I think Graham Taylor was a big fan. Um, in he was also he was also number nine at Euro 92. Nigel yeah, Clough, yeah, so yeah. That's, that's 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 what Taylor Taylor definitely definitely liked him. It's, it's just, I, I think with how on fire the other strikers would be, I don't think he he, he would, uh, I don't think, he would think point, about it though. I think he'd been usurped by this point by the, just the pure genius of the strikers and even Chris Sutton, who was you know playing for Norwich at that point and on the again on the cusp, he, he probably would have been ahead. But again, a huge wild card as you as you mentioned. I think we we probably in agreement of that. Would they be your four then, Matthew? As well, would you agree with that four? Or would Cole sneak in? Again, we're going on to the personal choice in hindsight, aren't we? I mean, I'm trying very hard to think of a mindset of an England manager at that time. And maybe you could say, well, I mean, Cole really only had that one. That was on the back of his breakthrough season, wasn't it? With this yeah. So, I mean, you could almost put up a case for, was he a flash in the pan? You know, which does happen sometimes. You do have these strikers that have incredible seasons. And I suppose it's the job of the England manager to think, well, is he just a flash in the pan? And, you know, am I going to look a fool? putting him in there above above established strikers and you know and you have got established strikers there so if you're going for the safe bet um I suppose Shearer 
Ferdinand Wright and Beardsley. I mean, can't really be more safe than that, I don't think. Yeah, it's very true. The Marcus Stewart factor, I think you call that, don't you? The, the one season one when he was at Ipswich and he, uh, he almost got an England oh, yeah, cap himself. Yeah, I'm sure there have been, been plenty. I'm sorry yeah. I've done a, a show on one-hit wonders. But, um, oh, yeah, I, mean, I, do that. I mean, I'm not saying he was, and obviously we know he wasn't. And again, that's with, with the benefit of hindsight. But maybe that was just the thinking going through Graham Taylor's uh, mind. But saying that, Cole never really established, established himself as an England striker anyway, did he? Even when he no. was banging the goals in for the next four or five seasons at, at United. No, yeah, Venable, Venables and Huddle didn't fancy him either, did they? So uh, he, only no. got, he only got a few more caps under Ericsson. So, yeah, it's... Mm-hmm. yeah, uh, Well, and Keegan, I think. So, uh, yeah, it's... Um, yeah, he, yeah, he wouldn't have been the first England manager to uh, turn his nose up at Andy Cole. Which must mm-hmm. mean something when you think about it, the fact that consistently England managers didn't think he would be... He, or, or should deserve to be picked as the main striker. There must be something that they knew, they saw in training... And then he, I know he was he was kind of targeted a lot for having a lot of chances to score. And at United, he did get a lot of chances because of the supply line. But at, at international level, you don't get as many chances, do you, to score? And maybe that was always against him. But it's yeah. interesting that he consistently wasn't picked by England managers. But as we've said so many times on this show, we're in an era of such brilliant strikers. It was very tough. And in, in particular, Alan Shearer, who dominated the era and is probably one of the greatest English strikers there's been. It's They're always fighting for at least number two spot, let alone number one. So it was a very difficult time then. Um, in conclusion then, gents, I think we're pretty much agreeing with you. I think the only kind of two arguments we would put up would be in defence, maybe Martin Keogh misses it out and maybe we stick Paul Parker in there just because of his versatility in terms of um, he could play right back sweeper. Um, there's an argument for Mark Wright as well over Des Walker. So, you know, there's there's that as well. Midfield, we're pretty much set. Um, Stuart Ripley had a little bit of a mention, but I think that's where we are. And then it's Cole or Beardsley. So I think as a squad, I'll just go through that one more time. So we had Seaman, Flowers and Nigel Martin. Then defenders Lee Dixon, Stuart Pearce, Tony Dorigo, Tony Adams, Gary Pallister. Are we going Walker or Wright? I'm going Walker. Matthew? Uh, just in case he's listening to this, I'm going to say Mark Wright. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, I do I do think he was a, a sort of an undervalued player and, and he had tons of experience and was one of the you know one of the most expensive defenders around at the time, English defenders. So no, I'm, I'm going to go right. And that's no disrespect to Walker. I just think that maybe Walker was on a bit of a a downward turn at the time but um no i'm gonna i'll go right okay and and Stu, are you sticking or twisting on walker uh, I, I think if you're going to talk form wise i think right absolutely is a definite argument for it but i just i just think i think taylor text walker i just think yeah. i don't think i don't think it has dropped him at that stage okay majority rules then are we going parker or keown i think paul parker Stu, I, I've, stick or yeah twist? i've changed my mind to parker yeah, <laughs> yeah. matthew yeah yeah i think oh. again versatility and yeah you know the team he was playing in, and you know he's one of the best defenders at the time. So yeah, I think you you've got to have him in there as a squad player, if nothing else. Okay, and then we go Platt, Ince, Merson, Palmer, the great Andy Sinton, John Barnes, David Batty. I think I might go Darren Anderson, but then it's a hindsight thing, isn't it? No, I'm going Stuart Ripley because I think he may have got a few more caps and the Blackburn factor. Matthew, I think. So we're basically saying Anderson or Ripley. Ripley, yeah, as the. Uh, I don't know. I think I'd. I think I'd go with Anderson. But again, that's purely based on the fact I've been watching a lot of Euro '96, and he just seemed to. <laughs> he just seemed to fit into that era, didn't he? But um, yeah, best of the devil, you know. I'll say Anderson. 
Yeah, Stu, you sticking with Anderson? Yeah, I'm sticking. Yeah, although I, it's, it's a really good shot. To be honest, I didn't really consider Ripley at the time, but yeah, it's it's a it's a fair shot with how Blackburn yeah. did that season. It may it may have been a season early. If Taylor had been in charge a season later when they went to the title, maybe it'd been a bit more of a, uh, a discussion. But yeah, we'll stick with Anderson. And then the final decision, I think you're both with Beardsley and I'm with Cole, so it'd be Shearer, Ferdinand, Wright, and Beardsley as the. Yeah, and looking at that on paper, that's a bloody good squad, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, not it's, a, it's a great squad, yeah. It, it, makes really you th- it makes you think, for sure. I mean, you look at the Euro 92 squad, and there's no disrespect to some of the players involved, but they weren't at the same level as, as some of the, you know, the, the sort of mesh we have, uh, we could have had in 1994. So it wasn't to be. And USA94 was still a fantastic um, World Cup, despite the fact that we uh, didn't qualify for it. Um, I enjoyed that. Thank you very much, um, gents. Um, Stu, your, where can people follow you on your football flashbacks on Twitter? Uh, you can follow me at, at Stu's Footy Flash. And then the blo- and the website is the... Oh, sorry, Stu's. the website as well is, yeah, stewsfootballflashbacks.com. Brilliant. And, I mean, to be honest, your tweets, I love looking at your tweets because you find some very, it like, random footage that I'm, you know, that is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not quite Sid Lambert, but I, yeah, I, try, and find, I try and find some some uh, obscure things yeah listen I, I love Sid Lambert but he has got some sort of you know YouTube machine built into his house I think I, uh, yeah I just haven't got the time <laughs> no I, I don't I mean I, we know Sid quite well on this on this show we you know so I, I don't know how he has the time either but ultimate respect um to how much effort he put into that account um so yeah hello Sid come on the show again soon uh, Matthew where can people get involved with you if they want to check out your latest articles yeah, well, unlike some friends of the show, I'm still on Twitter and I haven't been banned or kicked <laughs> off or whatever. I'm uh, at Matthew J. Christ on Twitter. And to the annoyance of said friend of the show, my handle on Instagram is the same, at Matthew That's J. Christ. Beautiful. Yes, uniformity. It's all about the brand. And you can follow me at Ash Rose UK on both as well, uniformity. Um, not for, for AK90s, because that was taken. So if you want to follow the show, at AK90s on Twitter, at AK90s pod on instagram someone took ak90s i don't know what account that was um but yeah follow us both on there um thank you very much to Stu and matthew we'll be back soon with more 90s goodness i fear and i'm giving you this a warning in advance we've got a janinio show coming so yeah that's a lot of joel that's all i'm gonna say but it's about time we did it um stay tuned and we'll be back soon keep it 90s <laughs>